This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Coronavirus Criminals and Pandemic Profiteers by John Nichols. Two years ago, President Donald Trump told a nation worried about COVID-19, we're prepared and we're doing a great job with it. It will go away. It has since been estimated that had Trump taken the same steps as other G7 countries, 40% fewer Americans would have died. It was not just the president whose callous and opportunistic decisions caused hundreds of thousands of deaths, Nichols reveals. Senators, governors, and judges promulgated public policies that led to suffering, while billionaires added pandemic profits to their grotesquely bloated fortunes. Nichols closes with a call for a version of the Pecora Commission, which took aim at what FDR called the speculation, reckless banking, class antagonism, and profiteering that had stoked the Depression. There must be accountability. Coronavirus Criminals and Pandemic Profiteers by John Nichols, out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. This week's dig is coming sooner than most digs because Russia just invaded Ukraine. Today's interview is with Tony Wood, and we discuss Russia's invasion, what it reflects about Russian politics and geopolitics today and historically, and how the left should be thinking about it all. I'll post a link to my past interview with Tony Wood on Russia and Putin in the show notes, and a link to my recent interview with Ukrainian sociologist Volodymyr Ishenko. If you are a regular Dig listener, please know that what makes this podcast possible is listeners just like you contributing money to support The Dig at patreon.com slash the dig. We have a new-ish weekly newsletter that digs even deeper into whatever we discussed on the past week's interview, and a contribution of any amount, even $1 a month, gets you that newsletter delivered into your email inbox. If you contribute at least $10 a month, we will send you a book or books or a dig tote bag or coffee mug with the dig logo right on it. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Okay, here's Tony Wood, a lecturer in Latin American studies at Princeton. He is the author of Russia Without Putin, Money, Power, and the Myths of the New Cold War, published by Verso in 2018, and Chechnya, The Case for Independence, published in 2007. He is a member of the editorial board of the New Left Review and a frequent contributor to the London Review of Books, among other outlets. I will also post a link to Tony's recent LRB piece on the invasion of Ukraine in the show notes. Tony Wood, welcome back to The Dig. Thanks for having me back on. Do you have a clear picture of Russia's war aims and then if those aims have potentially changed now that they have confronted such tenacious and effective resistance from from Ukrainians, how are things looking as we record and where might they be heading? Yeah, so I think the first thing to say is that um, the Russian decision to actually invade caught me very much off guard. And a lot of other Russian analysts are currently scrambling to reinterpret their, their views of the Putin regime because um, it seems to me that I have many criticisms of the Putin regime. I've put them into print for the past 20 years, but I didn't think that it was fundamentally irrational. And I mean, criminal, yes, aggressive, yes, all kinds of other things, absolutely, but fundamentally irrational, no. And this invasion seems to me to be fundamentally irrational. So my understanding of their war aims, I'm slightly kind of rejigging my understanding of what they originally were, because the stated war aims seem to me to be for want of a better word, insane. I think the idea that the Russians want to occupy all of Ukraine and impose a new government on it by force is just so crazy. I can't believe that that's a serious goal unless they've totally lost their minds. I mean, bearing in mind for your listeners, I mean, I'm sure 
you've took, had this on previous shows, but in 2004 uh, in Ukraine, there was a contested election and the Russian-supported candidate supposedly won the elections, but they were rigged and there was a massive popular protests and he was the, the elections had to be held again and a pro-Western candidate won the elections when they were held cleanly. So I just want to emphasize that, you know, this is 15 years ago, Russia couldn't rig an election in Ukraine. And now after everything that's happened since the annexation of Crimea, the long running war in the Donbass, the idea that Russia thinks it can forcibly impose a puppet government on this same population they couldn't force an election on is just crazy. So personally think that can't be a serious war aim unless they've lost their minds. I think the aim is something slightly different, which is to really kind of tear Ukraine apart politically. So the recognition of these two separatist provinces of Ukraine as independent states by Russia, that could be the prelude to full annexation. But it's also saying to Ukraine, you don't you're not going to have effective sovereignty over these territories again, right? So that's two provinces gone. And the Russian invasion and the idea that they could invade Kiev, you know, and send all these troops in that will is also a way of saying to Ukraine, you do not have effective sovereignty over your territory. Think again about your politics. So kind of regardless of whether Russia imposes a puppet regime or not, I think that initial goal of saying we can invade you at will and the West is not going to help you the West is not going to leap to your defense with a no-fly zone, etc. I think in that sense, that more limited conception of the Russian war aims has been achieved. But again, it's so insane and it's such a disaster. And I think it's going to be counterproductive, not just for Russia and, and its people. Obviously, that's definitely true, but actually even counterproductive for the regime. So I'm again, I'm just struggling to understand why they did this, because it is crazier than I thought they were. Yeah, what's most striking for me is that they went so far beyond just invading and maybe annexing the two separatist regions, which is more what I, on the order of what I had been expecting. Does this current war represent a break with the past model of Russian intervention? It seems so different from the 2008 war in Georgia, the seizure of Crimea, the intervention on behalf of Assad in Syria, or the various interventions currently underway in Africa. Yeah, absolutely. I think the thing that makes this most different, and I guess it was one of the reasons a lot of Russia analysts didn't think they were serious about invading, is that there was very little effort on the part of the regime in Russia to prepare the population for war. If anything, the opposite. They very casually and belatedly cooked up this pretext of we need to defend the people of eastern Ukraine from genocide, which is obviously nonsense. But um, so I think this is different. I think that degree, I mean, the examples you gave before, certainly the Russian invasion of Georgia, they made a very clear effort to justify it in the exact language that the West had used in its own interventions previously, and certainly in Kosovo, for example. So there was a sense that the Russian-Georgian war, in terms of its legitimation, was very much a kind of, uh, if you like, ideological, geopolitical retaliation. In the, we will We will do something in the same terms that you do and see how you like it. The invasion of Crimea was different again, a slightly different model, which is we will reincorporate this, you know, piece of historical Russia that has been uh, arbitrarily severed from us and it, we'll reincorporate it and, and, you know, reinstate Russia's national glory. And I think that piece of invasion, that, that kind of move was actually very popular in Russia. It had strong support and it kind of seemed to validate a kind of nationalist worldview. But again, they made an effort to justify it. Um, in terms of international law, doctrines, et cetera, et cetera. Again, how, however spurious they are, they made that effort to justify it. This war, they didn't really bother. And I think that's a break. Well, again, all of us are scrambling to reread this. I think there are two ways of thinking about this intervention now. One is that all of this stuff about restoring great Russian, uh, the great Russian nation, all of this kind of unwillingness to recognize the existence of Ukraine, essentially, all of this is a, is a kind of shows how deeply committed Putin really is to nationalism as a project. And he will use whatever motivations work in the given moment. But essentially, this is his driving ideological goal. And a lot of us overlooked that. I think a lot of us thought this regime is so cynical. Um, it doesn't believe in anything. It's just tactically improvising. And now a lot of people, certainly a lot of friends, analysts on the left are thinking we got this wrong, right? And this is a regime that is deeply irrationally committed to this goal and it will do things that are self-destructive in pursuit of that goal. So that's one reading that's available for what this war means. The other reading is that actually, no, they are still as cynical as we thought they were. They're using whatever pretext they can find. 
this time they were just lazier than usual. They didn't even bother. They just feel that they can do what they want, but they are still doing a series of tactical improvisations. They don't have a big idea. And I guess it's too early to tell which of those two things it is, to be totally honest. I think, I mean, I'm reassessing my views. I'm looking at the situation again and thinking, okay, what did I get wrong? How can we look at this again? Because I think that's the only honest thing to do. But I think it's still maybe too early to tell which of those interpretations would turn out to have been correct or if there's a you know third or fourth interpretation too. So there's, a lot of things are in flux um, is how I would put that. But I do think this is something new and that's why things are in flux and that's why we're all scrambling to understand it. This is different from what came before. Do you think that, that Putin and Russia's political and military elite, that they're surprised by the effectiveness of the resistance they've encountered? Again, this goes back to the question of how delusional they are. I think on a certain level, how stupid they are, how bad their intelligence gathering capacities are. I personally don't think, I find it hard to believe they're that incompetent, actually. However crazy they are and however bonkers the ideas they have are, I don't think they're that incompetent. And I think anyone who's been watching what's been happening in Ukraine in terms of the politicization of the populace, the shift in views about Russia, the degree to which the Maidan political revolution of 2014 did mobilize people and you had ordinary people armed and ready to take part in politics uh, in a violent clash. I mean, that's part of what Putin is really objecting to in Ukraine. And so the idea that they they would assume that they would be welcomed as liberators or something like that, I think that's just crazy. I just don't think they can possibly have believed that. Um, and so by that token, I don't think they could be surprised at the level of uh, resistance in terms of morale and in terms of Ukrainians' will to resist. They may have been surprised by the military, you know, the effectiveness of the Ukrainian military. But again, if part of the issue for Russia is the degree to which Ukraine has been receiving military assistance from the West, both in terms of training and in terms of weaponry, then again, I don't think they can possibly be surprised. I think it may be that they're surprised at the failure of their own forces. I think they may have thought, we know what the Ukrainians can do, but we we can do better. We can, within the space of, the, of a few days, really crush them because however much weaponry they have from the West is still no match for us. So they may have, it's not so much that they underestimated the Ukrainians, it's possible they overestimated themselves. Um, but again, this goes back to the question of what their war goals were and how, how delusional those goals were in the first place. Yeah, and so many past Russian interventions, which were calculated and limited in a sort a way that reflected a certain type of rationality, performed Russian military effectiveness. That was part of their goal, and that doesn't seem to be happening right now. Yeah, I mean, this is not, you know, we're only a few days in, and I think it's not a disaster on the scale of the first war in Chechnya, for example, which very quickly, you know, the Russians became bogged down, and it was apparent from pretty early on that they'd totally miscalculated the scale of opposition, the intensity of the resistance they would meet, um, and they just kept bludgeoning away because, you know, their military was still many times the size of uh, the militias and the popular army they were facing off against in Chechnya. So they have made this calculation before. They thought Chechnya would be a small, victorious war, and it definitely was not. And so there's an element of kind of persistent you know, hubris here. I think I wonder to what extent the people now running the Russian military, I don't know in terms of what kind of generational cohort that is, how many of them had experience of Chechnya, for example, um, how many of them had experience of Afghanistan in, in terms of the very senior ranks, right? I don't think that's the case anymore. I think if anything, the people running the Russian military are probably veterans of the second Chechen war when the Russians were much more effective, that had a much higher proportion of professional soldiers relative to conscripts, and, you know, the Chechens were much more divided and demoralized as well. So it was a very different war. The second Chechen war from, you know, late 1999 through to the mid 2000s, really, was a very different war from the 1990s Chechen war that Yeltsin launched. That was a, I mean, people have often referred to the Chechen war in the 90s as Yeltsin Vietnam, whereas I think the 2000s war under Putin was a very different animal. And I think that may be what the Russian military is thinking of. The other thing I think, Jovan, you mentioned it earlier is the Russian intervention in Syria, where they were really able to step in and change the outcome of that conflict to Assad's benefit. Um, and they were able to roll out new weapon systems they've been building and show their effectiveness. So I think they may have had some delusions about how exactly how well their own military would perform. But um, but again, I'm, I'm sort of struggling to understand here what their calculations were because they don't they still don't really make any sense to me. 
there is a minority of Putin apologist tankies. And then there are many, 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 many more people who accuse anyone who attributes any causal complicity to the historic role of the U.S. and NATO of being Putin apologist tankies. So on the one side, there's sort of a crude anti-imperialist line that sees the U.S. as the only agentive power in the world and frames Russia as acting purely rationally and reactively and even justly in response to NATO expansion. And then there's the dominant position, which is the one held by liberals and many conservatives, who claim that the West bears no responsibility and that this that this invasion was inevitable given Putin's long-term and irrepressible desire to rebuild the Soviet empire or to manage domestic politics or perhaps, have, as we've touched on, because he's simply maybe lost his mind a bit. How do you see the state of affairs and how do you appraise the state of the, the discourse? Good question. I mean, I think there is a, a problem here which we've encountered with every conflict, every war that the West has launched, that any attempt to contextualize, to situate historically, to measure responsibility gets deemed some kind of appeasement, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's almost by design, designed to shut out anti-war voices. And I think we have to push very hard to maintain a uh, consistent anti-war position against all wars, which is frankly the decent left position in general. I kind of, I do understand the, there's a kind of moral kind of basic imperative going on here, which is who is being bombed and who is doing the bombing. And so from that point of view, there is something gravitational pull in terms of the liberal view of we must support Ukraine. This is Russian aggression. Uh, this should not be allowed to stand, etc. And I think, you know, there's a reason that has moral force beyond the dominance of liberal views in, in the media sphere, right? And there is something morally compelling about that. Um, especially for, I mean, from my point of view, in terms of solidarity with ordinary Ukrainians who are being bombed, I definitely feel that. And I think, you know, we should find ways of, for example, of, I mean, there is a degree to which the hypocrisy of Western governments in terms of their um, immigration policy needs to be attacked. Um, and not just for refugees from Ukraine, incidentally, but also refugees from other conflict zones that the West has created, certainly Syria, Libya, uh, the entire Middle East, frankly, uh, Afghanistan, notably. I think in terms of having a solid kind of developed critique, I think one thing I've been thinking a lot about is, is unfortunately, World War One, right? And, and whether we are in a situation here where a regional conflict could escalate dramatically through the involvement of multiple more powers through alliances and connections like that. And I, th I guess, you know, this is maybe a little abstract answer to, to that kind of critique, but I feel like in a very narrow sense, you could say World War I was caused by X power invading Y, right? Like there's the assassination of the Archduke in, in Sarajevo, there's, you know, Germany's invasion of Belgium. And so from, from that narrow kind of looking for one trigger kind of point of view, then World War One is no one's fault but Germany's or no one's fault but Austria-Hungary's or whatever it is. But I think, I guess I would ask those people, is that really what you think happened with World War One? Do you really think there was no prior context? There was no buildup of imperialist rivalry? There was literally these events in 1914 happened in a vacuum. And I think actually anyone who's thought about this uh, or who even has a kind of the basic popular understanding of World War One does understand that there was a buildup of imperial tensions before that that made that context for that war to break out, right? I hope not, but I think we could be looking at something similar here where there is a creation of a context of tension within which one power then commits an aggressive act that unleashes a wider conflict. So I think I would say there is. it's definitely clear that Russia bears responsibility for this war in the sense of launching an aggression against Ukraine, and that's unambiguously true, and I think I don't think the left should have a problem saying that. But there is a broader historical responsibility here in terms of Russia is not acting in a vacuum. And what is it that makes that decision by the Russians, again, an aggressive decision to invade, which I think is a criminal one, not least for Russia itself. But what is it that makes that decision happen? And what role has everyone else played in creating that? And I think that's something that this discourse of you know appeasement and shutting down discussions of context, that's something that inquiry is... Uh, excuse me, that kind of line of critique is designed to shut down those kind of inquiries because any self-examination on the part of Western powers should not is not to be allowed, right? So, and I think the other thing about the discourse I would say that slightly worries me is that people are very understandably trying to support Ukraine, how they can express solidarity. 
But some of the forms of solidarity I've seen floating around on the internet are like, you know, crowdfunding the Ukrainian military. And I'm very uneasy and, you know, support for Germany's decision to send weapons. I'm very uneasy with this idea that flooding Ukraine with weapons gets equated to an anti-war position. I just think that is extremely dangerous. I think in some ways the problem is, obviously the Ukrainians are trying to resist with what they have, but I think there is something very hypocritical about all of these external powers who have fanned this conflict and who are not going to fight in Ukraine, flooding the country with weapons to make sure it continues to be a war zone and then calling that support. You know, I think that, I think we have to critique the escalation of this war that, that will result from Western powers continuing to flood Ukraine with weapons and to more or less goad the Ukrainians into not giving ground. I think it's very easy for armchair generals, you know, sitting here, you know, in the US, in the UK to say good on the Ukrainians for resisting. But, you know, it's not your country that is being torn apart here. And you should think again about you are promoting the continuation of a war. And I think ordinary Ukrainians want this to stop. I think the question of what conditions are for the ceasefire and what kind of peace could be made is a separate one. And we can talk about that in a sec. But I'm very uneasy about the degree to which support for the Ukrainian resistance can turn into support for continuation and then escalation of this war. And I think that is something the West needs to push against is to separate those two things. The solidarity of Ukraine is one thing and supporting the continuing escalation of the war is another thing. And we should try and stop that part. This moment reminds me a lot of the demonizing response to the anti-war left after 9-11, as though explaining the historical context that led to the rise of al-Qaeda was tantamount to defending them flying planes into the Twin Towers. But but given that Putin's motives, as we were just discussing, aren't as rational as we may have thought, what does the history of NATO expansion illuminate about how the context for the present crisis was created? Yeah, I mean, we could talk a lot about NATO expansion. There's a lot of, of kind of details here. But I guess the overarching issue here is that there's the question here of what is NATO for? And this is the question that Russian governments have been asking since you know, 1991. And the assurances that they received in the 1990s was, no, this is not directed against Russia. This is just a European military alliance and you can partner with us and maybe join it one day. No, but not really. Right. So there was a kind of ambiguity on the part of certainly the Clinton administration that we need to keep Russia talking to NATO, but we don't want to let them in. That was the kind of predominant motif. But in the meantime, Russia, uh, excuse me, NATO should definitely expand eastwards. That was a bipartisan uh, consensus in the early 90s. There were some dissenting voices, including remarkably uh, Thomas Friedman of the New York Times, uh, George Kennan, who was the, you know, the architect of containment. He thought NATO expansion was a bad idea. Yeah, Thomas Friedman just had a rather reasonable op-ed on, on this, which I don't think I've ever said about a Thomas Friedman op-ed or col- column. <laughs> right, right. It's, yeah. I know, strange bedfellows, but he, um, no, and he was against it in the 90s because it is strategically, I guess that if, if NATO is a military alliance targeting Russia, that is what it is. And I think anyone who tells you otherwise is basically lying, either willingly or unwillingly. So expanding it eastwards is aiming for confrontation, right? That strategically, that is the purpose of NATO expansion is to expand the boundaries of the alliance and to have a a cluster of consolidated allies against Russia. That is the point of it. That was the idea of NATO expansion. And the curious thing, and I mean, I've been reading around about this, obviously, as everyone else has, but in the the 90s, the, the military component of NATO expansion slightly dropped away because Russia was not a threat, right? The initial premise behind NATO expansion in the 90s was we can do this because Russia is not militarily capable of responding or going to respond because they're not. Uh, Under Yeltsin, Russia was not hostile to the West. So this is an opportunity for expansion, very much premised on military weakness of Russia and military strategists were barely involved in discussions during the 1990s in NATO expansion. So you have this perverse situation where you have an expansion of a military alliance that is really not being driven by military concerns and military thinking. Um, and that, to me, is the historic error that is that is you know now in some in a long indirect way. But that is what is now tearing apart Ukraine is the idea that you can just expand this alliance uh, targeted against Russia without any kind of pushback. 
And I think everyone thought, well, you know, the NATO strategists clearly thought that it was worth doing to consolidate Eastern Europe in a kind of pro-Western, pro-US uh, alliance uh, so that precisely Russia wouldn't be able to push back. But actually, I think, essentially, I've, I've phrased this otherwise as, you know, NATO expansion was designed to secure Eastern Europe against an outcome that it actually helped to produce, which is the consolidation of a Russian nationalist state with interests fundamentally distinct from those of the West. So in some ways, NATO expansion has helped produce this hardening nationalist Russian line that Putin had. I don't think it makes sense to think that Putin had this plan from 1999 onwards. He's been waiting 20 years to do it. I think these things developed in kind of lockstep. I mean, and I'll just remind your readers who may, excuse me, listeners who may have seen this elsewhere, but in when Putin was first president in the year 2000, he asked Clinton if Russia could join NATO. Uh, and Clinton said he would personally be in favor. Um, but Clinton was by that point on his way out. And he said personally, meaning there is no policy connection here. Russia not only wanted to join NATO, they cooperated with the, the West through the early war on terror and even in as late as the disastrous intervention in Libya. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, even actually, you know, beyond that in Syria, I mean, the Russians and the US uh, military were coordinating the timing of their bombing sorties so they didn't fight each other in Syria as recently as, I don't know, 2015, I think. So, so there's a degree to which there's been an aspiration to cooperate on the part of Russia that has been rebuffed because I think Western strategists have been quite clear throughout that Russia is something separate from us and we can't integrate them. And so the Russians have gradually worked out over time that this is not going to happen. And so in a way, I guess, you know, NATO strategists have spent 20 years preparing for a hostile Russia and now they have one, right? So this is one of many ways in which I think tragically this war is giving NATO what it's wanted this whole time in some kind of deeper existential sense, this this war is really a kind of war that validates NATO. And I think that's one of the things that's very dangerous about it. As W.E.B. Du Bois said about World War One, the cause of war is the preparation for war. Right, right. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, NATO expansion, I think, I mean, plenty of people obviously disagree <laughs> with this right now, but I think without a doubt was bad policy and I'm pretty confident that we would not have this war right now if it hadn't happened. But but once so much NATO expansion took place under Bush in particular, what could the U.S. and NATO have negotiated with Russia under Obama, Trump, and then most recently under Biden? And then most specifically, I guess, in the past few months, what could have been negotiated that could have prevented this war? Or do you think the cake was sort of baked under Bush? No, I don't think so. I think there were plenty of other opportunities. I think... There were limits to what the there were there were limits to NATO expansion that Russia would still have had to swallow. I think, and so the question is how much further you NATO had to go before Russia started pushing back more actively. And the answer is Ukraine and Georgia, and, we, and that's been clear since at least two thousand and eight, right? Two thousand and eight, uh, there's a NATO summit in Bucharest. Um, Putin invites himself along and says, under no circumstances should you offer membership to Georgia and Ukraine. Uh, whereupon NATO offers a kind of promise of eventual membership, but no imminent action plan for joining to both of those states. And so it's in re- it's in to some degree in response to that that Putin invade. You know, there is a trigger. The Georgians actually are the first to invade, but Russia responds with a, uh, a counter invasion into in August two thousand and eight, recognizing two breakaway regions of Georgia. And so that is the first warning shot, if you like, in the kind of wars of NATO expansion. That is the first warning shot that Russia is saying any candidate state that we don't want to admit to NATO, we will go in and tear it apart, right? And they've did that with Georgia. And that was the first warning. The conflict in the Donbass and the annexation of Crimea, again, there is a nationalist project here of reincorporating Crimea. There is a kind of attachment to the greater Russian kind of nation. Russian speakers in eastern Ukraine should not be part of the Ukrainian polity, maybe that is partly what Putin is thinking. But on the other hand, I do think that the annexation of Crimea was a very strong message saying, you can't admit this state to NATO, we will take it apart, right, by force. That I mean, that's it's a very drastic drawing of a line. And I think one of the 
questions of historic responsibility over the long run here is that Russia was continually drawing quite aggressive militarized lines from 2008 onwards, and the Western response was to just ignore those for whatever set of reasons, like we can't give in to bullying, etc., all the liberal stories. But it was very clear that if there was no rethinking of NATO expansion and no discussions with Russia and no offer of some strategic framework that was different from NATO expansion, there would be consequences. And this is what we're seeing right now. And I think there is an issue here that, you know, we need to bear in mind. I mean, who knows? It's true. Maybe Russia was bent on this invasion from the beginning. But back in December, the Russian government sent to the US a new proposal for let's have discussions about a new strategic architecture. Um, and let's talk about Ukrainian neutrality and this sort of thing. Um, and these security proposals were just ignored. Like So to some extent here, the West has not put anything on the table except the continuation of business as usual. Again, there's a kind of moral issue here that as far as people sitting in Washington are concerned, NATO should just expand whenever it wants to and the Russians shouldn't have any say in that and the sovereignty of the people of Ukraine should be respected, right? That's the kind of can't. And I think that's deeply hypocritical because if you're sitting in DC, it makes absolutely no difference to you whether NATO expands 100 miles east or stays where it is. Whereas for the people of Ukraine, it makes literally a life and death difference. And I think there's a huge strategic irresponsibility there. And to be honest, I think it is abetted by the fact that the people who influence this situation most in terms of NATO expansion are several thousand miles away. And you'll notice that the people who are most hesitant within NATO about the expansion were the people who are in Europe, right? France, Germany. And they don't really want a war with Russia. And again, this has been billed as appeasement, et cetera, et cetera. But I do think part of the kind of anti-war critique should be that the people who have to live with the consequences of a war should have more say than people who live thousands of miles away. You write, quote, it is a bitter irony that Russia's invasion will be taken to justify membership in an organization that did nothing to prevent it. And that's a point I've been rather fixated on, but I haven't seen made much at all, at least in the mainstream press, that that given that NATO and the U.S. refused to defend Ukraine, it suggests that the U.S.'s motivation in refusing to negotiate any of these core issues over NATO beginning in December with Russia, that it had nothing at all to do with solidarity with Ukraine. I think the hypocrisy here that needs to be attacked, that if we were really concerned about the welfare of the Ukrainian people, if the West was really concerned about that, then there would be much more conversations about, okay, what would be a viable political settlement for the future of Ukraine as uh, to maintain its territorial integrity? How do we get the Russians to stop pumping weapons into eastern Ukraine? How do we incorporate, reincorporate eastern Ukraine's two separatist provinces, guarantee them whatever political settlement will make sure that those people can be part of the Ukrainian polity again? And I think, unfortunately, no one was serious about that. Very serious, few serious conversations were had about what, how does Ukraine plan to reincorporate these territories and what could be made to help that happen? And yeah, and there, and there is a degree to which the US certainly has been very firm that NATO membership has to stay on the table, regardless of when it happens, right? There's, there's no sense that Ukraine, I mean, prior to this war, there was no sense that Ukrainian membership of NATO was imminent. It was the promise of membership. So there's also something, I mean, in addition to the horror and irrationality of the current conflict, when we step back and think about this, you know, in hindsight, I think everyone will think, how is it that we hopefully avoided World War Three over the possibility of a country becoming an ally? Like, how is that? How is that deemed worth tearing Ukraine apart for? And again, I just think that there's there's a Russia has the main blame for tearing Ukraine apart because it's their tanks and guns that are doing it. And I don't think that's that's in question. But there is a question here of what it means for the West to be quote-unquote supporting Ukraine. And I think the nature of that support should be placed more in question. Yeah, I think what's actually guided the U.S. approach is not so much solidarity with the people of Ukraine or the goal of the negotiations would have been to prevent war. Instead, what seems to have guided the U.S. approach is what always seems to guide its approach, which is these kind of like more abstract imperial power notions around credibility and not deferring to lesser powers and whatnot, the same thing that kept the U.S. in Vietnam for so long. Yeah. I mean, the other thing I, I think is worth adding here, and it's maybe sort of obvious, but that the U.S. has very little 
relationship with Russia in practical terms that matters. It has very little bilateral trade. It has obviously diplomatic connections have been very bad and hostile for the past several years. But there's a sense in which for US policy concerns, Russia is really an abstract entity. It's like a slot on the map, but it's not a real country as far as US strategists are concerned. I mean, I, I say that, you know, that's a crude summary. Whereas I think for European countries such as Germany, Russia is a real place that they have a lot of bilateral trade with, they have a lot of connections with. It's it's on the map, it's close to them. And I think it's I don't think it's a coincidence that US rhetoric and policy towards Russia in the past 10 years or so or eight years, whatever time frame you want to adopt, but but certainly since the Obama administration and especially since the 2016 election, the degree of hostility to Russia is totally disconnected from any actual relationship with the country. Uh, and in terms of domestic US politics, it's totally disconnected from Russia itself as a place. It's all Russia is this sort of floating signifier of evil headed by Putin. But I think in geopolitical terms, something similar applies that, that Russia is not, there is no real cost to the US for doing any of this. So again, I think it's currently the Ukrainians who are bearing the most cost of everything. And all of what is happening here for the US has zero cost. And I think there's something, uh, yeah, morally very troubling here in larger kind of strategic terms. This is Sarah Jaffe, and you are listening to The Dig with Daniel Denver, my favorite podcast for thoughtful discussions on the U.S. left and beyond. And you can support it on Patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at Patreon.com and by Haymarket Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is To Govern the Globe, World Orders and Catastrophic Change by Alfred W. McCoy. In a tempestuous narrative that sweeps across five continents in seven centuries, eminent historian Alfred McCoy explains how a series of catastrophes, from the devastating Black Death of 1350 through the coming climate crisis of 2050, have produced a relentless succession of rising empires and fading world orders. As Jeremy Scahill puts it, the book's scope is so massive that only a scholar of McCoy's skill could even consider attempting to capture it. McCoy's meticulous understanding of the past and present failures and excesses of empires gives him the rare credibility to offer a detailed, damning picture of the grim realities humankind faces as history transforms into our future. To Govern the Globe, World Orders and Catastrophic Change by Alfred W. McCoy out now from Haymarket Books. Find to govern the globe at haymarketbooks.org. NATO expansion, of course, has been going on for a long time, and the crisis and conflict in Ukraine began in 2014, at least, depending on when you want to date the beginning of it, but a while back. Why did this invasion happen when it did? Because for a long time, it seems like the U.S. was gearing up for a new Cold War with China. And now here we are, somewhat suddenly, at least, is the feeling, I think, in the shadow of the old Cold War. Why Why now? Yeah, this is a good question. I mean, as I said at the, the, the beginning, I'm, the decision on the side of the Russians to invade seems to me fundamentally irrational and a, just a, both a crime and a historic miscalculation. And I don't really understand the timing. I personally, you know, I was wrong about this. What I thought would happen is that, you know, we've had several months of, the Western governments leaking Russia's war plans. And so there's a sense in which Western publics have been prepared for war for two months or more, right? Psychologically, we've been being prepared for this war, whereas Russia, they made very little effort. So there's this weird asymmetry, right, where the side that has actually done the invading didn't bother preparing its population for war, whereas the sides that were nowhere near the conflict have been psychologically most prepared for war. I think there's there's something very odd here that I don't understand the urgency from the Russian point of view. Like, while the West was ramping up this idea of a war threat, the Russians certainly amassed a lot of forces in territories next to Ukraine, but they were in Russian territory. And so my guess for the past couple of months has been the longer the West is talking up a war threat that hasn't yet happened, the more that's a win for the Russian government, because they can just say, we're just minding our business, driving our tanks up and down the border. There's no issue here. And doing that, maintaining their military presence around Ukraine still conveys a very, very substantial threat and is a means of pressure. 
And so I thought they would continue that game for months, but not actually invade because I, at that point, you know, until a week ago, thought the idea was to maintain political pressure to force the West into a new conversation about security and to force the Ukrainian government into a conversation about implementing the Minsk peace accord, something, some combination of those motivations I thought was what's happening. So the, so from that point of view, to get back to your initial question, I didn't think the Russians were in any hurry at all. So this is part of my reaction of shock to the invasion, apart from again, the human shock of warfare being unleashed, an aggressive war being unleashed on a civilian population. There's also a shock of, I don't understand what the need was for them to do it. Yeah, which brings us back to the surprising extent of Putin's irrationality, because ironically, if predictably, Russia's invasion is, is driving the entirety of Europe into NATO's arms. Yeah, yeah, it's it's so counterproductive. And I don't know if the Russian government thought that was a risk that was worth taking or just didn't see that risk. It, it, it's not clear what scale of miscalculation we're looking at here. The other thing that is worth bearing in mind in the background here that may be affecting the timing um, is that, you know, since last summer, there's been a kind of, there was a sort of turn in, in DC policy circles that, you know, Biden has to get serious about Ukraine. There was a very aggressive report put out by the Atlantic Council calling for a new strategy, essentially, of sort of ramping up more military aid to Ukraine and and really forcing Biden to re-engage with this issue. So I think there may have been some pressure from within the Beltway to to reprioritize away from the kind of Cold War with China, but to like, let's keep going with the with the Cold War with Russia, right? So that heightened the sense from that the Biden administration might start paying more attention to Ukraine might have been part of uh, Russia's motivations. I guess the other thing that I just don't know, and a military analyst, analyst would know better, is what is the scale of uh, Western military aid to Ukraine, and was it about to increase substantially? Was there a reason for the Russians to try and take out that hardware now? Practically, was there a reason to do it then? But honestly, I don't understand the timing. The timing is one of the many things I don't understand about this decision by the Russians to invade. Putin has absurdly claimed that he wants to denazify the Ukrainian government, but he is also notably blamed the Bolsheviks for what he describes as the artificial creation of Ukraine. What what do you make of Putin's attack on the Soviet past here, particularly given that so many seem to think of him as so committed to resurrecting this lost Soviet power and glory? Yeah, I mean, I've always had very little time for this idea of Putin as a kind of neo-Soviet figure bent on restoring the Soviet Union and communism. I think that's just Cold War tropes. I mean, a lot of people hark back to his KGB training as if it's really the KGB wants to resurrect the Soviet Union in, and Putin is leading that effort. I think that's fundamentally wrong. I think he is a, he is a Russian nationalist by inclination. And he's been very consistent about this, actually. This is not a new line of analysis on his part that the Bolsheviks are really to blame for the disintegration of the Soviet Union because they created this very artificial structure that gave the national minorities within this, the former Russian Empire, uh, gave them too many rights. So, and he said this in speeches many times before that the, that the Bolsheviks placed a bomb under historical Russia, right? Something equivalent to that phrasing. Um, so this line of analysis is not at all new. And I think the the kind of this idea that he's bent on restoring the Soviet Union is just a pure piece of ideology that has proved very hard to shift because the Soviet Union is the adversary that people are most used to thinking about. So it's much easier and it's a more conventional narrative to have this idea that there was this brief period in the 90s where Russia was moving forward and then Putin comes in and it moves back. It just rewinds 20 years. But actually, we're dealing with something fundamentally new in, in the person of Putin. He's very much a product politically of the 1990s of that atmosphere. And what he wants to restore is something very different from the Soviet Union. It is Russia as a global power within which, you know, ethnic Russians play the major role. But I've never previously thought of him as an ethnic Russian nationalist. And I think that's another interesting piece of the analysis that is a lot of people in the West think of him as a fascist, as an ethnic nationalist, as a chauvinist. And he's, you know, many terrible things, but actually ethnic Russian nationalism has not been part of his repertoire. Maybe it will be from now on. And, you know, there's gestures to it here and there, but broadly speaking, 
both Putin and Medvedev, all kind of recent Russian governments have been quite scrupulous in describing Russia as a multinational federation comprising lots of different national minorities. And in fact, back in 2014, when tensions with Ukraine were at their highest after the annexation of Crimea, there was a lot of um, discussion in Ukraine of derogatory terms for the Russians, right, as being Muscovites. Uh, Muscali is the term. And at that point, Putin sort of, you know, gestured around his cabinet and said, oh, there's a, you know, and he listed their names and I've forgotten the exact names. But the point is there was a name that read very much as Ukrainian. There was a name that read as Caucasian. There was a name that read in Russian terms as very Jewish. And so he said, what kind of Muscovites are these? So there is a sense in which the the ethnic Russian nationalism, I think we can need to separate out from the project of great Russian statehood, which can be in theory pluri-ethnic. So something like that, where there is a pluri-ethnic Russian state that can contain other nationalities, but uh, Russians play the, there is a term in Russian, uh, state-forming role. Uh, I think something like that is what he's bent on. And that is very much not what the Soviet Union was. Um, and I think the sooner everyone recognizes this, the better. The argument of your, your book, Russia Without Putin, was that analysts focus way too much on Putin the individual and that that obscures this more comprehensive context of the Russian political system that created Putin and nurtures Putinism. How much do you think this invasion can be explained by the Russian political system and how much needs to be explained by the peculiarities of Putin himself? And then relatedly, and we've already touched on this a little, you think that this irrationality of Putin or of the system more broadly is new in the sense that that Putin's mindset and or the mindset of those around him has changed in over the last couple of years? Certainly Putin's personal motivations do play a prominent role in the Russian state. So the argument of my book was not intended to say that Putin makes no difference. It's more that it's exaggerated the degree to which he dictates everything that happens. And I think, you know, analytically, this is an error that's been made before about so-called totalitarian states, right? The idea that Stalin simply decided everything and that there was no involvement by anybody else. And ditto with Nazi Germany, there was the idea that Hitler decided everything. I mean, and I think that's just a very primitive kind of analysis. And I think it doesn't really help us understand how the Russian state is moving and making its decisions. I think it's true that there's a very narrow group of people in the leadership who are making decisions. But I think the thing we need to really understand is that Putin has stayed in power as long as he has because he has really served, as far as that elite is concerned, as the ideal arbiter of all these different interests within the Russian elite. So he's a kind of balancing figure who accrues power by virtue of his capacity to keep this unit, this elite unity. The larger question this raises is how much the elite is really behind this uh, invasion of Ukraine and how much there's a kind of separation going on between the geopolitical calculations of the political leadership of the country versus the material interests of the economic elite of the country. Um, and I think this is one of the kind of larger analytical questions we're all going to have to grapple with is how far are those two logics now diverging in a way that could be damaging to the regime in the long run, right? Is there going to be, you know, is the Russian elite going to decide this guy is totally insane, he's going to destroy us all, we need to get rid of him and let's organize a coup, right? You could imagine some scenario like that. I don't think that's likely, but but there is something here where a lot of people in the elite will be concerned about how this decision got made because it is going to be a total disaster for Russia, either a, you know, hopefully brief disaster or a very long disaster, but it's, there's no doubt this is a disaster and it will rebound on Putin very, very badly. But to the extent that everyone else in the leadership was on board with this idea, it will rebound on them all very badly. So this is why I think Putin is not under imminent threat from the elite, because I think they've basically all backed this project for whatever set of reasons and to whatever degree. So and I don't think we're going to see a kind of unified elite response against the war or to get rid of Putin. I just again, I could be very wrong and I've been wrong uh, in the recent past. So it's, it's definitely possible but I just don't see it imminently happening. Not imminently, but it's possible that if this decision to invade was more made by Putin, the individual, that it could heighten the contradictions between Putin's individual leadership and the various elite power blocks that he has to negotiate with 
to maintain power. Is that possible? Yeah, I think that's possible. I think the other thing to sort of consider here is that to the extent that the West has identified this as Putin's war, um, again, analytically wrongly in my view, but and for example, the German Chancellor Olaf Scholz said this is Putin's war, not the war of the Russian people. I think one of the things that also does is say to the Russian elite, look, you can dissociate yourselves from this by getting rid of this guy. Right. So actually, even if the elite was fully behind the project, did fully support it, did fully buy into it, if it turns out very quickly to be a disaster from which they, they're not going to recover, they can offload it all onto Putin and get rid of him. So there's, there's the analysis that you just summarized neatly that I gave, but also it's a possibility that the, the close identification of the war with Putin gives the Russian elite an out. And I think that's one of the things Olaf Scholz's message was supposed to say indirectly. Speaking of the Russian people, what, what is the state of the anti-war movement on the Russian streets and how does it fit in to the broader, more recent history of, of dissident protest movements in, in Russia? Yeah, I think one important thing to bear in mind, which people might not be aware of, but every protest you see uh, happening in Russia right now is illegal, right? There is no right to protest in Russia. There are rights in limited circumstances. If you get a permit, for example, which is obviously not going to happen, you do have a right as an individual to protest. So those, so one of the forms that protests have taken in the past is like uh, a mass of individuals all agree to go for a walk together, right? So the, formally, there is no protest that's been coordinated. It just happens to be 10,000 people walking down the street <laughs> together, or not that many, actually. But So I guess I want to emphasize that in terms of the what it tells you about the popular mood in Russia is that this, these people are very much putting their bodies on the line because they are subject to the full force of repression of the Russian state, probably judicially facing severe punishment right now. There's talk about the Russian government trying anti-war protesters for treason. I mean, that kind of level of threat. So this is not like, in a sense, they're facing a much higher, harsher set of obstacles than the anti-war movements uh, against Iraq and Afghanistan in the West. There is just no right to protest. So taking that context into consideration, I think the scale of these things has been impressive. I guess the other background factor is protests in Russia tend to be very small. So anytime you hear about popular protests in Russia, there's always the caveat of by Russian standards, right? So a picket of a thousand people in Moscow is actually sizable by Russian standards, but not by any other country, right? So the numbers of arrests, the numbers of people turning out, this kind of spontaneous reaction against this war, I've found personally very heartening. I'm you know, very worried about the people who are being exposed to violence in Russia as well. But I think it does indicate that there is really no popular appetite for this war at all. They're very shocked by it, partly because the population was not prepared for it, but partly also because, you know, Russians just on some basic level, whatever the politics of the past several years and whatever they've been fed by Russian TV about what's happening in Ukraine, they just don't see Ukraine as a fundamentally hostile force. There's just, you just can't convince the bulk of the Russian population that that's true. And that's the problem the Russian government currently has is the longer this conflict goes on, the worse that dilemma is going to get for them of how do we keep painting the Ukrainians as the bad guys? And I think a lot of Russians are just not going to swallow it. And that is new and different. I think the the annexation of Crimea was popular. It did, as I mentioned earlier, have this kind of sort of almost cathartic force of being a kind of national revalidation, right, in some terms. And everyone talked at the time about Putin's popularity boost from the annexation of Crimea. And in Russia, this was called the Crimean consensus. This was a new platform for legitimacy for the regime. Whereas I think, if you like, the invasion of Ukraine is sort of the opposite of that that this is a not at all popular war. There is no support for it, no appetite for conflict, certainly no appetite for sending conscripts to get killed in Ukraine, no appetite to perform this aggression against their neighbor. So it, it, if anything, it would be the opposite of the Crimean consensus. It would totally erode uh, Putin's legitimacy in the long run. So I think from that point of view, the Russians, and this is my if you like bleak optimism right now, that the Russians currently have an interest in ending this very quickly, in finding something they can call a win and backing out. Because from here, from the Russian side, it just gets worse for Putin and the government. And so that's my hope that they can be brought to the negotiating table uh, very swiftly. You write, quote, 
The second Minsk Protocol of February 2015 established a ceasefire between Ukrainian pro-government forces and Russian-backed separatist militias in the Donbass. Having been compelled to accept a peace deal at Russian gunpoint, it is perhaps not surprising that Ukraine would drag its feet about implementing it. But there has been little serious pressure on Kiev from its Western allies. Instead, successive U.S. administrations have kept arms shipments flowing and continued to promote Ukraine's bid for NATO membership. The implicit message was that the political process laid out in Minsk would sooner or later be a dead letter. Russia's invasion suggests that its own commitment to the agreements was a sham, but the broader failure to implement Minsk too never put that to the test. What might the Minsk Accords working have looked like? And then looking forward, following up on your last answer, what sort of negotiated solution might be possible both in the short term to end this war and in the longer term to achieve peace and stability? Yeah, I'll, I'll take the second part of that first, because, you know, today there were meetings between Ukrainian representatives and Russian representatives and uh, the, well, they were scheduled today, certainly. And the the Russian side laid out its preconditions for a ceasefire. And there were three. One was to discuss Ukrainian neutrality. One was to denazify, in quote marks, uh, the Ukrainian government. Uh, and the third was to have, uh, I believe it was federalization uh, of Ukraine to allow or to greater autonomy for the Donbass. So that is a kind of accelerated version of the Minsk Accords. Basically, the Minsk Accords, is, I mean, you mentioned that piece I read, they allowed for decentralization of Ukraine, some kind of federal constitutional setup. And, and from the Russian point of view, what that would have achieved was essentially a kind of blocking minority within Ukraine that would have allowed these two Russian-speaking provinces to have a large degree of autonomy and probably some kind of veto on future NATO membership. So that would have given the Russians a blocking minority. And from the Ukrainian side, that was obviously seen as an infringement of sovereignty and they didn't want to sign up to that. I think there is a question here, and, and someone who's followed Ukrainian politics more closely than I have will be able to tell you better what actually happened and why the Ukrainian side didn't implement it. But in, in that piece that you quoted, I do think there's a degree to which Ukraine's Western allies didn't push them to implement the Minsk Accords, though I think there may have been some implicit reassurance that they didn't actually have to do this. I think in hindsight, who knows, it's possible that the Russian investment in Minsk was a sham and maybe they planned to dismember Ukraine all along. But I do think, again, in hindsight, it would have been worth finding that out. And it would have at least kept Ukraine in one piece and it would have been a political framework for resolving Ukraine's internal tensions rather than this continuously militarized front line that Ukraine has had. And again, we should bear in mind, Ukraine has basically been at war since 2014. Between 2014 and uh, I think... 2021, there was something like 13,000 casualties in the Donbass. This is quite substantial levels of casualties, um, considering this there is a ceasefire. So there's been an on-running war in Ukraine, and it's partly because this Minsk settlement was not implemented by any of the sides. So in terms of what the future looks like, I think there are all kinds of terrible scenarios, as I mentioned, for escalation involving wider powers. There is a scenario where the Russian military stays in Ukraine longer and longer and the west keeps pumping weapons into ukraine to bolster the ukrainian resistance and the whole country just becomes a war zone uh, for a long time to come and i very deeply hope that doesn't happen um i think any kind of ceasefire and peace settlement is going to look something like minsk to be honest um i think it's going to involve some degree of again if the intention is ever to reincorporate these territories into ukraine it'll have to involve some degree of decentralization and federalization and i think the real issue, and I think Putin's demand that Ukraine denazify itself is obviously not going to fly. That's going to have to be dropped in the interest of peace, and I don't know if they're going to insist on that. Conversely, the big question to me is, is, is Ukrainian neutrality on the table? Uh, Zelensky floated it the other day, I think, um, and this has been discussed by the Russians, and is that going to be a solution? I think that's something that the Ukrainian population might support because a lot of them have seen that actually... They're not currently members of NATO and being an almost member of NATO doesn't do you any favors, right? So actually neutrality might be better. But I do also think that, as you mentioned, like this war was really going to consolidate opinion behind NATO membership. And on the contrary, 
you know, it's already in the Ukrainian constitution. They modified the constitution in 2019 to include a kind of aspiration to join NATO in the constitution. So to some degree, they're on that track and this will accelerate them along it. So my fear is that these Russian preconditions for a ceasefire are not going to be met either by the Ukrainian government, the Ukrainian populace are going to reject them, and so are Ukraine's Western allies. And so we're going to have a failed ceasefire. And that, and, and again, this will be framed in terms of we can't appease Russia, we can't give them what they want, we can't make any concessions to this kind of, you know, aggressor. Um, and while, you know, rhetorically that has a certain ring to it, again, it's Ukraine that is going to be turned into a battlefield as a result. And so I think there has to be some sense of who is willing to negotiate what, what kind of platform for peace could be assembled what is it that is i guess what i'm trying to say here is is the western idea that ukraine should not make any kind of concessions and should just insist on doing what it was doing before because that seems to me deeply irresponsible um and i think the question obviously we should be led by what the ukrainians themselves want in this situation but if there is some kind of platform to be found i think it is going to have to take something like a kind of People have talked about a Minsk three, right? Some version of that. But I'm not wildly optimistic about that happening. Yeah, I, th I think it's always worth pointing out that no matter how evil people think Russia or China or whatever rival country is, that we need global geopolitical stability and peace to deal with global warming. There's just like nothing more yes. yep. important that we need to accomplish right now. And that's a sort of real politic at odds with an idealist neocon ideology that I think is still very much baked in to a bipartisan American ideology, even two decades into this disastrous war on terror. But I think, I think humanity just can't afford war and conflict right now. And this makes me worried not only on its own terms, but as a prelude for what might happen with China, which certainly does a lot of objectively horrific things. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there's a sense in which, I mean, this gets back to the issue of what the hell the Russians were thinking. But I think to some extent, they do have this analysis that the era of US hegemony is waning. Uh, we are going towards a multipolar world in which there are regional power blocks of great states, and it's Russia's job to consolidate its sphere. But I think if that's their analysis, they're profoundly mistaken about the timing. I think, look, Maybe, yes, U.S. unipolar dominance is on the wane, but it's still very, very much with us. And so I think if the Russians calculated that they could start forming a multipolar world by doing this kind of thing, they're profoundly mistaken. Um, but, but following on from that, I do think there's a real issue here of on the left, we have all kinds of very strong and valid criticism of the unipolar moment. But one of the things this has opened up is what is the multipolar moment going to look like? And is it going to be a series of regional conflagrations like this one could turn into. The other piece of this, I think, is that there's a sense in which this is really a kind of delayed outcome of the US invasion of Iraq. Essentially that, you know, the whole neocon move to rewrite the international rule book and to show that actually, you know, the US doesn't have to abide by the international rules of the system that the US itself was heading, right? That the US is the exception that defines the rest of the system. And I think what Russia is trying to do by this invasion is, is on one level, partly also to say, look, you rewrote the rules, we're going to do that too. We're a regional power, we have the right to do that. Because the US's own actions have shown that these rules don't exist. Um, but I think the problem that the Russians have is actually that the system as such is true that the US broke all of the rules of its own system. It's true that the war on Iraq was a war of aggression in contravention of international law. It was a crime. There's no question about that. But the problem is that the rules of the so-called rules-based system run by the US, they don't apply to the US. They do still apply to everyone else. And we're not yet in a world where they don't apply. And so that's the, the contradiction that Russia is currently caught in and why I think they may be surprised that, you know, their banks are being locked out of the SWIFT system, et cetera, et cetera. So all of that, you know, escalating interstate conflict bodes very ill for efforts to combat climate change. I totally agree. And I think this is, you know, in the long run, it could be extremely dark if, if this escalating great power conflict is where we're heading. Well, Tony Wood, thanks very much. Thank you. Tony Wood is a lecturer in Latin American Studies at Princeton and the author of 
Russia Without Putin, Money, Power, and the Myths of the New Cold War, and Chechnya, The Case for Independence. He is a member of the editorial board of New Left Review and a frequent contributor to the London Review of Books. I'm posting a link to Tony's recent LRB piece on the Russian invasion of Ukraine in the show notes. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after noting that, but unheroic though bourgeois society is, it nevertheless needed heroism, sacrifice, terror, civil war, and national wars to bring it into being. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis and recorded at WBRU in Providence. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Tamuz Frankel and Gemma Sack. Our senior advisor is Thea Riofrancos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at thedigradio and find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe to this podcast. If it is on iTunes, also take a quick moment to rate and review us. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners, but honestly, what really does that is you telling your friends why you listen to the podcast, why they should listen to the podcast, and whatnot. Please make propaganda for us, and do find us at patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks a month is huge. 